Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause the words that we have sung to resonate in our hearts, and we pray that you would cause the truth of the text before us to build us and shape us into people who live out these truths. And Lord, we ask that you would make us useful in our generation. We pray that you would make us those who know you in the midst of our difficulties and those who experience you in such a way that we can speak with a voice of hope to people who are resorting to to things that won't help them or even to things that will destroy them. So Lord, we pray that you would be renewing us into the image of Christ and then make us like him. Cause us to be those who know you, who experience you, who walk with you, and then those who lay down our lives for others, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an article in this weekend's Wall Street Journal on anxiety. Uh, the, the article is entitled, Up From Anxiety, and it's written by a lady named Andrea Peterson. And I'm tempted to read the whole thing to you, but I'm just going to try to stick to the first few paragraphs because it is so similar to what we see in Psalm 102. So this lady writes, fear, this is, I'm, I'm quoting here, it's an extended quotation. She says, fear ambushed me. It was early on a December morning in 1989. I was a sophomore at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, staring at a wall covered in long sheets of printer paper and trying to figure out which of the listed classes to take for the coming semester. I felt fine. I was groggy from a late night of studying and touched by a bit of that Midwestern late fall dread, anticipating another long, cold winter, bundling up against the fierce wind. But I was okay. And then, a second later, I wasn't. A knot of fear erupted at the base of my spine and traveled upward. My stomach flipped, and I broke out in a thin film of sweat. My heart rate shot up. I felt the erratic thump, thump, banging against my ears, my stomach, my eyes. My breathing turned shallow and fast. Fuzzy gray blotches appeared before my eyes. The letters before me warped. Words dipped and buckled. The onset was as sudden as a car crash. Something in my body or brain had gone dramatically and irrevocably wrong. My noisy internal monologue, usually flitting from school to boys to a laundry list of insecurities, coalesced around one certain refrain. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. She goes on to talk about how th th this was diagnosed eventually as, as an anxiety disorder. And in the midst of all of this, she relates that she had largely stopped eating. And with, with this lady's account of her own experience in mind, I just want to draw your attention to Psalm 102, and let me read to you verse 3. Think of her saying that these gray blotches appeared before my eyes, and 
The psalmist here in Psalm 102 verse 3 says, My days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. And he goes on this way, but what I'm driving at is, I think the experience this lady is describing is very similar to the experience that this psalmist is is having that he's responding to in Psalm 102. And this is a a very interesting song. Look at the superscription there of Psalm 102. It says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So we don't know exactly who this was, but the previous Psalm, 101, is a Psalm of David, and the Psalm after that, 103, is a Psalm of David, and those are the only two Psalms in Book 4, Psalms 90 through 106, that have Davidic superscriptions. So maybe that colors the prayer of the one afflicted as a Davidic Psalm. Maybe it's not David. I, I don't know. But this is somebody who's afflicted. And everybody in this room is going to be afflicted. Some people are going to deal with affliction in, in, in less successful ways than others. And, and some of us in this room are probably going to have experiences like the one described here uh, by Andrea Peterson. The, like the one described here by the psalmist. What the psalmist says here is is instructive for us in every way, whether we are encountering this kind of experience ourselves or trying to help somebody else who's in the midst of a panic attack or some kind of anxiety disorder. So let's look together at at Psalm 102 and and consider what we find here. This psalm is going to fall into five parts. You can draw your own conclusions about how those five parts might or might not correspond to one another, how they might or might not turn on the central part. In the first six verses, we have this prayer of one afflicted, and and it's it's very interesting what he says. Look at at verse 1. This this should sound familiar to you if you've been here and you've been working through the Psalms with us. Hear my prayer, O Lord. The, The first three words, hear my prayer, these are exactly the same words that we find in Psalm 39, 12, Psalm 84, 8, and, 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 and some other places there are slight variations. So it's interesting that in the midst of a, a uniquely strong panic attack, we might call it, the psalmist is resorting to what we might refer to as stock phraseology from the Psalms. I think that's comforting. Because I think what it says to us, this is going to continue. Look at, look at uh, verse 2 when he says, Do not hide your face from me. Exact same language that we find in 27.9 and 143.7. And then when he, when he refers to the day of my distress there in verse 2. Exact same language from 27.9 and, uh, I'm sorry, no, that one's from 59.17. And then when he later in verse 2 says, Incline to me your ear. Same language from 31.2 and 71.2. When he says um, there in verse 2, answer me speedily. Uh, same language from 69.17 and 143.7. Now, now here's why I think that the reuse of this stock phraseology is comforting. 
It's comforting because here you have a representative of the people of God, a psalmist, somebody who's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when he finds himself in this severe emotional difficulty, he reaches for words from the Bible. And in in picking up words from the Bible, what he's doing is he's saying, my experience is like the experience of other writers of other psalms. What he's doing is he's saying, there is solidarity between my suffering and this other suffering. And that's important because what it doesn't say is something like this. My experience is so unique and so drastic and so severe that it distinguishes me from all the other people of God and the Bible will not help me. You you see, he's not doing that. He is not doing that. And and the way we know he's not doing that is that when he finds himself in this difficulty, he says the same things that we find in other Psalms. I, I think that's tremendously comforting for us. And, and let's look at what he's doing. Do you hear what he's doing in verses 1 and 2? Let me just read these verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. I mean, it's very simple what he's doing, isn't it? He's just crying out to the Lord to be heard. He's saying, I need you to hear my prayer, and I need it to happen already. I need you to hear me now. That's what he's doing. And then he goes on in verses 3 through 5 here, and he's going to describe for us, I read these verses just a second ago, he's going to describe for us the severity of the emotional distress that he feels. When he says here in verse 3, for my days pass away like smoke. I don't don't know if he means my life seems to be passing so quickly that it's like wisps of smoke that are just going before the wind. And and the older you get, the faster the days seem to go. And, And so maybe he means my life is very brief and it's just being blown away like smoke on the wind. Or maybe he means this emotional Difficulty is so difficult that that it feels like I'm just in this fog of smoke. I can't see things clearly, and and I'm sort of lost in this blinding grayness. My days pass away like smoke. And then he goes on in verse 3 to describe this, this physical pain that he feels down to his bones. And my bones burn like a furnace. Fire makes smoke. And, and it's, it's a burning furnace that he feels in his bones. He goes on in verse 4, My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. So it's like he's, 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 just, he's comparing himself to grass that's been scorched by the August sun. It has not been watered, and it's just wilted before the heat. And then at the end of verse 4, I forget to eat my bread. So he's not eating. He's not nourished. He goes on there in verse 5, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Now, I think that when he says because of my loud groaning, what he's really getting at is because of the pain that prompts the groaning, I'm not eating, and as a result, I'm emaciated. So, so he's describing himself here as, as suffering physically because of his emotional distress, And this continues 
in verses 6 through 9, he says here, uh, he, he starts comparing himself to a, a desert owl. You may, you may have a translation that reads pelican. He says, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness. I, I'm not sure exactly what the point of comparison is. An owl or a pelican, these are both unclean birds. He does it again in, at the end of verse 6, like an owl of the waste places. So I, I don't know if he's saying, uh, I'm unclean like one of these birds, or I'm experiencing a kind of flighty skittishness like, like these birds, or maybe he's just saying, I'm as physically ugly as a pelican as a result of my suffering. But look at verse 7, he continues, I lie awake. So this anxiety is prompting him to groan, he's not eating, he's emaciated, and he can't get any rest. And he feels isolated in the middle of verse 7. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it enormously comforting to see that a saint of God feels this way. If, if, you, if you're somebody who feels this way, and, and, and you find yourself in the depths like this, you can take comfort from the fact that the psalmist is describing himself in these terms. This is somebody who's walking with the Lord. This is somebody, we're going to see, this is somebody who knows the Bible thoroughly. This is somebody who's going to respond to this emotional difficulty with the, the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. This is somebody who's actively walking with God, and yet this is the world we live in. People feel this way. People get down like this. And, and so at one level, what I think we can say is it's okay to get into a situation like this. When, when you find yourself here, you're, you, can be in, you can notice that you're in good company. You're in good company, and it's not reason to give up. We can also learn from the psalmist how to respond to this, but, but he's not done yet. Not only is he alone and, and feeling forsaken, look at verse 8, all the day. My enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Now, this may indicate that we are dealing with David. And the reason I say that is because uh, for somebody to use your name as a curse, it, it, it seems like this would have to be a pretty important person. You know, This is the kind of thing that we experience when our cont contemporaries uh, take the name of our Lord Jesus and they pronounce it like a curse. They use it in their oaths. And so for somebody to do that in a curse, it seems like this would have King David, you know, some sort of curse like that or, or, or something along those lines. Um, it seems like we're dealing with an important person. So his enemies are taunting him, they're mocking him, and, and they're cursing him with his name. And then verse 9, I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. And here he locates the problem. Uh, not everything is due to this, clearly, because we've got enemies taunting him, but, but this difficulty is taking him back to his own sin. Look at verse 10. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. Now, you're right if you're thinking. He doesn't explicitly say there, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I deserve that. Okay, you're right, granted. But in the Bible's logic, 
In the Bible's logic, God is righteous, God is just, and God disciplines his people for their sin. So for the Lord to be indignant with him implies you're righteously indignant with me. You're righteously angry with me. And you are righteous in your visitation of justice against me. So I think we can say that the first step up is going to be a step down. When, when, when you're in the pit like this, one of, the, one of the first steps you need to take is the step of self-examination and an acknowledgement of God's righteousness, which implies a confession of your own sin. But don't stay there. Okay, so from the psalmist we can learn, I don't just wallow in, in the pits of my emotions, and I don't, I don't just refuse to acknowledge my own sin. Okay, we, we, he, he's explored the depths, he's plumbed the depths of his emotions, now he's turning to acknowledge God's righteousness, which confesses his own sin, and that brings us uh, to verse 11, where he says, my days are like an evening shadow. So the shadows lengthen at the end of the day because the sun is about to, shed, about to set. Then he says, I wither away like grass. It's as though he's at the end of his life and he's acknowledging that just as God said would happen, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Sin brings death. So he's acknowledging God is just. God is righteous. The way that God set the world up to work is the way it works. And that brings us to the turning point. Because where he says in, at the end of verse 11, I wither away, now the contrast comes in verse 12, but you, O Lord. And his thoughts, which to this point in the psalm, his thoughts have been dominated by his own condition. His thoughts are now going to turn and they're going to be dominated by who God is and by what God has promised. So, so this is like a recipe for dealing with anxiety. Okay, Explore the depths of it, confess your sin, and then, as the psalmist does here, turn your thoughts to the Lord. And the way that the psalmist responds here is so significant for us when, when we find ourselves in this situation. Uh, but before we explore this, let me, let me read you a little bit more from Andrea Peterson. She writes of how um, she found some help from certain practices, practices that she had to be diligent about. She writes, sleep eight hours, do yoga, take it easy on the wine. And then eventually she, she says... Um, she says, my, my therapist first had me create a fear hierarchy, a list of things and situations I avoided because of anxiety. And then she goes through them. She says, the idea was for me to actively face my fears by eliciting anxiety symptoms and gathering evidence that experiencing them wouldn't lead to whatever catastrophe I'd conjured up. So she takes stock of what she's afraid of, and then she uses her life experience as evidence against those things. And then she goes on. There's mounting evidence that mindfulness techniques like meditation. So she's, she's pointing to evidence that meditation and yoga are effective at easing anxiety symptoms also. Now, what I would say is the same thing I said last week. 
When I, when I talked about Freud and I said the best things in Freud are the things that you'll find also in the Bible. And then, and then I would argue, leave aside all the stuff he got from hypnosis. <laughs> now, the best thing in this article that she experiences in helping her with hang, her anxiety is stuff you can get from the Bible. If you will meditate on the Scriptures, the Scriptures will be ready to hand in the moment when all of the terrors come crashing in upon you. And it will be the, the shield of, the, of, of, of faith that, that you can use to ward off the, 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 the encroaching spear of the enemy. It will be the sword of the Spirit that you fight him off with because you've meditated on the Scriptures because you've dug these channels in your mind of words from the Bible. Look what the psalmist says in verses 12 through 14. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You see what the psalmist is doing? He's saying, look, my life may end. Verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. My life may end, but you're going to go on. They're not going to overcome you. And that means that evil is not ultimately going to triumph. The world is not going to fall down. The sky is not going to collapse. Righteousness is, is not ultimately going to be overcome by evil. You, O oh Lord, are enthroned forever. And, and it'll never, it'll never cease your righteousness. He continues there in verse 12. You are remembered throughout all They may kill me but they're not going to stamp out the remembrance of you. My life may end, but you're going to be remembered. That's what he's saying. And then verse 13. This is beautiful. You will arise and have pity on Zion. Now, I think where we are in, in the Psalms, um, you know, we, we've been marching through the first two books. The Book one of the Psalter is almost every one of those psalms, all but three of them, have Davidic superscription. It's, and it's like we're walking through David's suffering on the way to him being enthroned. And then in book two, it's like we enter into David's reign. You know, Psalm 51 takes us to his sin with Bathsheba. And then at Psalm 72, when we enter into book three, uh, it's like there's this transition to Solomon as David uh, the end of Psalm 72, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And, and that prayer was addressed uh, of Solomon. And then, and then Psalm 72 through 89, it's like the line of David kings that ends in the exile of Jerusalem, the destruction of the city, the burning down of the temple, the breaking down of the walls. And so this psalm, I think, it, it's, it's as though we're, we're dealing with this from an exilic perspective. So I think you can think in terms of the psalmist speaking as one who has experienced the exile. And so when he says in verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion, what he's saying is you are going to restore your kingdom. You are going to rebuild your city. You will arise and have pity on Zion. And then um, how this next phrase is translated can be debated. You could take this the way the ESV does. It is the time to favor her. Or you could take it as um, the time to favor her, the appointed time comes, as in it will come eventually in the future. Either way, what the psalmist is doing is looking at what God has promised. He's going to restore his city. He's going to, to keep his covenants. He's going to do what he said he, he's, he, he would do. And the psalmist is saying there's an appointed time for that. 
There's an appointed time when you are going to make all things new. Verse 14, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. And here again, I think that what, what, what he's doing is he's saying, it's like the city of Zion is in rubble, but because you put your name there, Lord, because you promised that you would put a king from the line of David on the throne in Zion forever, we love the wreckage. We love the ruins of the city of Zion. We hold the stones and the, and the dust dear because of your promises. So what he's saying here is, Lord, when you arise, verse 13, when you have pity on Zion, look at what he says in verse 16, for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. What he's saying is, Lord, you're going to build a new Jerusalem, and I believe it. I'm in the depths of, of distress, but I'm going to think on you, and I'm going to think on, on who you are and how you are everlasting, and I'm going to set my mind on your promises. You're going to rebuild this rubble, and the nations are going to see your glory. Verse 15, nations will fear the name of Yahweh. What's that? Where does that come from? That comes from the fact that when the Lord arises to show mercy to his people, to have pity on Zion, verse 13, that's going to mean the defeat of everybody that's mocked them. That's going to mean the, the overthrow of everybody that has set their kingdom up against the kingdom of God. That's going to mean the vindication of God's people so that everybody that's mocked God, everybody that has uh, scoffed at the idea that he reigns, they are going to be overawed by his splendor. And as a result, the nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth, middle of verse 15, will fear your glory. The most majestic people in the world are going to be on their face before the majesty of the living God. 4, verse 16, the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He's coming. You see what's happened in the psalmist? He's gone from being in the depths of despair to worshiping, to celebrating the future display of God's glory, to confidently asserting that one day the Lord is indeed going to make that dust a city whose streets are paved with gold, a, a city that, that has walls of all these precious stones, and, and, and there are 12 gates that stand ever open. He's contemplating the city that is to come. Look at what he says in verse 17. This brings him back to, to where he was in verses 1 and 2 when he was saying, please hear my prayer. Look at what he says in verse 17. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. I don't know how to communicate the depth of this comfort, but when, when you're at your lowest, you feel worthless, right? You feel like nobody should have any respect for you. And Psalm 102.17 says that the Creator God, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not despise those who feel that way. The Lord does not despise their prayer. Let that take root in your heart. 
Let, let the vines of the truth of this statement just wrap all up in your insides and know that when you are at your lowest, God doesn't despise you. He regards the prayer of the destitute. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't pretend to understand this, but I think there's something too. When, when you're at your lowest, what you reach out for what you cry out to in that moment, that shows what you really think is going to help you. And I think the Lord is honored. He's honored by people who are in that state who reach out to Him. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Um, this, this lady, Andrea Peterson, I, I thought this was really interesting what she said. Um, she, she goes through the various kinds of treatments that people are, are, are trying to, um, to help people in this kind of situation with. And she, she writes, scientists are also experimenting with transcranial magnetic stimulation. You heard that right. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. A non-invasive treatment using a device that is placed over the scalp and generates a magnetic field. Magnets. Magnets. Um, she talks about the various kinds of um, um, drugs that people are given. And um, she, I thought this was interesting. She writes, at least a third of the people with anxiety disorders don't get much relief from the available drugs. And even when they, when they do, the drugs can have undesirable side effects. And then, I'll be honest with you, I was astonished. I was shocked. I mean, I had to read this over and over to make sure that I was understanding what she was saying as she talked about the kinds of drugs that scientists are experimenting with. Listen to this. One promising drug is ketamine, most commonly used as an anesthetic, but also known as the street drug Special K. I had to read that over and over to make sure I was hearing it right. She's saying that doctors are prescribing things that are used on the street. She goes, she, she repeat. she does it again. Later, she says, a few scientists, this is a quotation, a few scientists are even starting to look at MDMA, better known as ecstasy, as a way to augment treatment. That's shocking to me, that scientists and doctors are resorting to these things that are illegal on the street to try to help people. Um, and, and, and they're doing this in the midst of a situation, we got this neighborhood mailer in the week, in the mail this week, and, and the people in our neighborhood association, City of Linden, they write, many of you have probably heard of the astronomical spike in heroin overdoses in Louisville Metro. During the first 45 days of 2017, first 45 days, okay, so, um, you know, think around from January 1 to around February 15, first 45 days, there were over 1,000 overdoses in our larger community. That's over 22 people a day overdosing on heroin. On one single day in January, there were 45 overdoses, two of which, two of which resulted in deaths. Um, th this, this little piece goes on to describe the way that um, drug dealers are cutting heroin with these awful substances, I mean, I'm just going to read this to you because it's, un, it, it's one of those, I, 
I can't believe this, but listen to this. Just the small amount of this additive that, that is used to cut heroin, just the small amount absorbed through the skin when touching a driver's license, for example, or administering care to an overdose victim can be fatal to an officer, firefighter, or medic. Let's pray for Mike France, all right? Let's pray that the Lord would protect him. Let's pray for the people dealing with this. It's shocking to me. And it's shocking to me that in the midst of this kind of situation, doctors and scientists are experimenting with these street drugs to try to help people with anxiety. I think there's better help. I think there are better ways to deal with these situations. The way that the psalmist is dealing with it. There's a hope that we have that can stabilize people in the lowest of places. A hope with no side effects, except good ones. You know, good side effects come from walking with God and believing his promises. Look at verse 18. This is another, I, I was stunned as I worked through this psalm. See, I worked through this psalm and, 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 and things jumped out at me that I had, I've read this psalm I don't know how many times and I'd never seen this verse, I don't think. Look at verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. And, and put this in the context of the things that he's been saying. Verse, verse uh, 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. The time to favor her, the appointed time comes. There's a future day when the Lord's going to do mercy to Zion. And then on that day, verse 16, the Lord is going to build up Zion, the new Jerusalem, and appear in his glory. So verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come. It's like the psalmist is saying, my pain is not just for me. My pain and my experience of God's grace, that's for that generation in the future that is going to see the glory of God's salvation. Uh, This is is written, Psalm 102, is written for a future generation, the generation that's going to have seen God's salvation. That's us. The psalmist is saying, I'm writing this for you people. I mean, this is, this is 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, right? Peter's saying, uh, those uh, in whom the Spirit was working, they were searching and inquiring uh, who it was or what time it, it would be that the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to. And then they realized, Peter says, that they were not serving themselves, but you. You who have seen things that angels long to look into. This is is validating what Paul said. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9 and in Romans 15 and essentially in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says things like, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And and this is validating the author of Hebrews in his argument when he says in, in a variety of ways, the Old Testament was looking beyond itself. The Old Testament was incomplete in itself. The Old Testament knew, the, the Old Testament knows that it's not the final word. It's looking forward. Psalm 102, 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created, that word created there, that's bara, that word that's all over Genesis 1, 1, uh, in the beginning God created, he's talking about a new creation, I'm going to write this down for a future generation so that when God does the new creation, the new Adam, the new humanity, that people may praise Yahweh. Um, What he's saying, I think, in part is, 
My pain is serving a larger purpose. My pain is not meaningless. My pain is not pointless. My suffering is not without any kind of ultimate significance. What the Lord is doing in my heart is producing things that are going to bear fruit in the future. And if you can believe that as you suffer, if you can hold on to that truth, you can survive. You can survive. And, and even, even Andrea Peterson, she, she gets down to the end, and listen to what she says. I certainly don't see my anxiety as a gift, but it has some upsides. And then she talks about the good things that she's learned and the way that dealing with this problem has helped her. She says, anxiety makes me live a more authentic life and a more empathic one, meaning she, she's able to show more empathy to other people. Our suffering is not meaningless. It's not pointless. The Lord is going to conform us to the image of Christ. He's going to He's going to use, use all this for good. The psalmist uh, continues. He says in verse 18, Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And then here's why they're praising the Lord. Verse 19, that he looked down from his holy height. So exalted in holiness. God is looking down from heaven at the earth, verse 19, verse 20, to hear the groans of the prisoners. Once again, this is just verse 17 again. He's regarding the prayer of the destitute. He's not despising their prayer. He's hearing the groans of the prisoners. Middle of verse 20, to set free those who were doomed to die. God is going, this is like um, Psalm 6, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That passage that Jesus quotes in Luke 4. Liberty to the captives, to set free those who were doomed to die. Verse 21, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. And then verse 22 takes us right up to the eschatological assize, the great day when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. At the end of all things, you know, it makes me think of that scene in the Lord of the Rings when Frodo and Sam are having that conversation and, and they're saying to each other, one day they're going to talk about us and one day they're going to say of us, tell us the story of Frodo, the brave, and tell me the story of Samwise. It's like what Marilyn Robinson says in, Gil in that novel Gilead. She says, I believe that in the future, this world will be Troy. And our story will be the epic they sing in the streets. She's saying in the new heavens and new earth, the story of our lives is going to be like the Iliad and the Odyssey. The epic that people sing in the streets. And then after verse 22, the psalmist comes back to his own situation. He says in verse 23, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. But he's going to contrast this. With, with the Lord. So he says in verse 20, 24, Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. So he's still suffering, but he's crying out to the Lord for deliverance. You whose years endure throughout all generations. So he's addressing the Lord. And now in verses 25 through 27, we have this passage that the author of Hebrews quotes in Hebrews 1. And the author of Hebrews addresses this to Jesus. 
Now, there's, there are a number of things going on here. Um, one of the things, one of, I think one of, the, one of the clearest things that we can say about this is that the author of Hebrews, he does with this passage what John does in John 1 with the creation account in Genesis 1. You know, John says, uh, in the beginning, and the, referencing Genesis 1, and then he inserts Jesus into the story because now he knows, John knows, that Yahweh became flesh, the Word became flesh in Jesus. And, and the author of Hebrews, he takes this passage, which the psalmist is addressing to the Lord, and the author of Hebrews identifies Jesus with the Lord, as several New Testament authors do. And, and look, at, look at the meditation here. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So he's contemplating God's creative power. Of old, before all things, God created the world, and the glorious heavens, the, the stars, the, the night sky, that's the, the work of God's hands. They will perish, but you will remain, verse 26. I think, again, this implies the present heavens and earth are going to pass away, and then this new heaven and new earth is going to come in. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Again, I think this is pointing to that, that great renovation, this, this cosmic flip of, of the rundown house that God is going to do. But you, verse 27, are the same, and your years have no end. The author of Hebrews may be picking up on this voice, this verse when he says in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then he brings everything together in verse 28, and he reconciles God's eternality with the difficulties of God's people when he says in verse 28, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring, the seed of the woman, shall be established before you. He's talking about the people yet to be created. He's talking about those who have walked in faith, those who have trusted the Lord, hoped in His promises. He's saying they're going to be established forever in the new heavens and new earth. So here's, here's what I would offer to you as, as a sort of application of, of what I think happens to the psalmist in Psalm 102. I think what he experiences is the fog of anxiety being burned away under the blazing sun of the certainty of God's promise. The fog of anxiety has been burned away under the blazing sun of the certainty of God's promise. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you can experience this. You can know the God who became flesh. And, and really, the story of the Bible, it, it, it's, it's a story of God reconciling the world to Himself. It's a story that involves the Creator, the King Himself coming in the flesh. And at the cost of mortal pain to Himself, He has paid His bride's debt, broken the bonds of her captivity, 
vanquished her tormentors, cleansed her of her defilement, clothed her with his own righteousness, and promised to bring her to the place that he is preparing where he will dwell with her. And me asserting that is not an act of privilege. Well, it is a, it is a privilege to experience God's mercy. But me asserting that is to assert a story that God offers freely to people of all colors, all backgrounds, all socioeconomic statuses, all education levels. This is open for you. You can have this. All you have to do is turn from your sin, turn from the things that are killing you, and look at Jesus. And what you'll find is that there's nobody more beautiful. There's nobody more compelling. There, there's, there's nobody that, that will more effectively make you say, as my professor John Hanna said at DTS, I've sailed my bark into that harbor and found a rest that will last forever. You can trust Jesus, and we're inviting you to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in your word you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we pray that you would make it effective in our hearts. We pray that you would cause us to experience the comfort of these assurances that you regard the prayer of the destitute, that you don't despise us in our need. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be so awakened and amazed and enraptured by your goodness to us that we would be helpful to others. Lord, we ask that you'd give us wisdom to be ready with a word in season. We pray that you'd give us tact to know how to approach people in their suffering. We pray that you'd make us winsome as we talk about your good goodness. We ask that you'd make us sensitive to meet people where they are, to speak the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would attend our efforts with the power of your spirit, that your, your name might receive all the praise for the good that comes. Amen.